Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. Welcome back to the FBF Podcast. This is our show in the game. I'm Matt Chatham, your host, joined by Brady Quinn. Uh, we got an exciting week here, and we're, we're really kind of looking forward to getting this one because I'm going to do it a little different than we've done most of them this season. A year ago, many of you will remember, we did a college football show, then we did an NFL show. This year, we've just been one show throughout the season, and I've kind of uh, I've kind of strayed from college football, and that's probably more on me than Brady. Brady's out there knocking out big-time college football games every weekend. I'm out here doing, you know, <laughs> UConn or, or BC or, you know, uh, Temple or UMass games or whatever, and, and we're way outside the college football scene, so I'm not nearly as up-to-date on it as you. I kind of can tell you everything you need to know about those teams, and that's about it. But that said, you're working last week in the pack and the pack stuff, and and their team, Washington, pulls through a big win over Colorado. That scene, sort of, uh, for the college football playoff, has now sort of cleared. We understand who's there in the four. Uh, I wanted to kick off this show with some college football talk and sort of how you feel about how that whole deal fleshed out. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of tough to you know, really digest everything because since its inception, you hear this college football playoff and you think in your mind that, okay, th- this is an actual playoff. This is what we've wanted. This is what we see in the NFL. We see playoffs. We, you know, and we think that's what this is. It, it's not really that. Um, you've got this committee that is, is going to basically pick which four teams they believe are the four best in the country. And the problem with that is it's subjective not like the BCS where we had some sort of calculation each week, you know, you'd get a ranking, but then you'd get this number next to it. This number would give you some sort of idea of how far other teams were apart. And there are all these different variables that played in the factor. The problem with the college ball playoff committee now is we essentially just see these rankings and we don't have any sort of indication of, for example, before the big 10 championship game, how far away Penn state was from Ohio state. Ohio State is number two, Penn State, who was number seven um, before the the Big Ten Championship. We we have no idea. And we're sitting there, we're trying to figure it out, you know, what Penn State can do to jump up within the top four because the hypocrisy comes when you put together this list of criteria and you say championships one, you say head-to-head play, strength of schedule, common opponents, all these things that the college football playoff committee is supposed to put into play. And, and the problem in my mind is you have a spokesperson come out, Kirby Hocutt. He's the athletic director at Texas Tech. He was the one deemed to speak for the college football playoff committee this season. And one of the things he said was, one is not weighted more than the other. And when you say that, that's where you lose me. I don't right. know <laughs> how a conference championship can't outweigh common opponents or strength of schedule (laughs) or some of these other pieces of criteria that they put together. I mean, it's the ultimate goal as a player, as a coach, as a fan, you believe that if you win your conference, you should be able to go into the college football playoff. It's no different than in the NFL. If you win your division, you go into the playoffs. So that's why I think we have this idea of what a playoff is because of the NFL and because of, other, you know, you know, sporting events and leagues out there, but that's not what this is. You know, this is a committee yeah. that, at least in my mind, they picked the top four, let's say their top four teams that have head coaches that they believe in. The bottom line, in my mind, is Alabama was going to get in whether they won or lost the SEC championship games because they were that much better than everyone else in the SEC. If you were going to send sure. an SEC team, you couldn't have sent Florida. They, they would have had three losses. You still would have right. sent Alabama. And, and then that's one issue a little bit with it. Um, the other issue is the fact that, you know, they believe in Nick Saban and Urban Meyer and Dabo Sweeney and, and Chris Peterson because they've seen Chris Peterson do it on a big stage before at Boise beating Oklahoma. So I, I personally feel like they just didn't believe in James Franklin yet. They kind of said, hey, you're playing with house money. This is great. Go ahead and take your, you know, two-loss team, Big Ten champion, all that, and who beat Ohio State – and we'll put you at number five. So you were close, but no cigar. And I have, I have an issue with that. I have an issue with that from, you know, the fact that it's hypocritical considering, you know, championships one and head-to-head play are two things you're factoring in and you're putting that team ahead of them. And, and even more so if, if, for example, 
you're, you're saying championships won aren't, isn't weighed more than head-to-head play, yet Penn State was ranked ahead of Michigan. So if you felt like right. championships won didn't matter more than head-to-head play, right, you would, have value, you would have viewed Michigan and Penn State a little bit different. Michigan pounded Penn State in head-to-head yeah, exactly. play. But Penn State has the, the conference championship. So, so that, to me, the whole entire process is hypocritical. I almost wish they'd just bring back the BCS style of rankings and all of that and, and have that be what we look at week after week so we don't have some of the asinine things that come out of the college football playoff committee from week to week. Well, I'll give them this, uh, and I'm, I'm, no, I'm no fan of this. To me, this just was something that right off the bat when – and I, I think we sound similar here. When you say playoff and then you find out it's four teams in a five-power conference thing, I immediately know, well, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, So it's like in a, in a way, it's sort of the system is set up to fail. I mean, regardless of what formula they come with, how stringent they are with that formula, how much they float the, the criteria – uh, there's still five power conferences. Uh, so uh, the, the problem is always going to be just a math one for me. And I guess I, I'm obviously, this is going back to old shows from a year ago. I'm obviously a big proponent of just going eight uh, for this reason. I think this is one of those great years where it would not have affected your top. I think even consensus view, regardless of how you're measuring it, most people out there believe Alabama's head and shoulders above everyone. Now in a one game scenario football is a strategy game yeah maybe Clemson knocks him off maybe potentially Ohio State's it's close she's they've got the athletes too um Washington I don't know there but the, the point of it is I think that this would un, this would unaffect that regardless of how we'd set this system up BCS uh, four team in in, in in a five power or an eight which I think is preferable to all of these but the reason I think eight is is important and there's actually an article on, on, on cbs.com I'd encourage people to go out and check it Mark Emmerich the guy that's sort of the head of the NCAA and is, is sort of weighed in this week and I thought surprisingly so uh, in favor of the eight game playoff um but I say that in knowing that, you know, there's been, there's been, uh, there were conversations about this a year ago and, and there was really no step forward and really felt too strongly about needing to make it an eight. So it usually takes years like this where there's enough, uh, you know, discontent, I guess, that, that, that you may have gotten it wrong. I mean, there's a, there's a good plausibility out there that, you know, say, say, Mich- you know, the Michigan might be the second best team out there possibly, you know, or, or at least close to the second. And they're not even involved in this. So my, I guess my thought is just sort of big picture. If you're going to do this power, if you're going to have power five, you can't possibly have a number less than five. Just whatever it is you'd settle on. Um, I'm a little against the idea that college football has moved, you know, nationally, regardless of this playoff system to a 12 games. We used to play 11. So they've added the game. And I understand the revenue drives these things and TV contracts and all that. But it would be great if the argument against, you know, age is just an additional round. But I think all the teams that aren't in this can continue to play their game. And if you're in that scenario, you could you could pick up the game and it's not going to hurt you. Uh, I just don't exactly understand how. Well, how you would miss out if you did eight, because you could literally, and it'll never happen this way. I get this, but you could have these same scenarios in all of the conferences, right? You could have the guy that technically won it and the guy that you felt was maybe a little more strong resume wise, but lost at the wrong time. So you could, you could appease both sides. If you have eight, you could end up with all of your technical conference champions. In some situations, it's a one that would win on both metrics, but in some situations say, Hey, you know, technically Penn State won, but Hey, we all kind of believe that Ohio State is clearly head and shoulders and in eight, you get both. Uh, I think if you do eight, it'd be interesting to see if they could cap it. Say, Hey, we're allowing ourselves yeah. sort of the safety net here that you, you can't have three. We don't want to use eight and then fill up four SEC teams or something like that. This would be a bad year for that. But the purpose of eight would be as a catch-all and the event that you have the conference champion champion that's demonstrably uh, inferior from overall resume to the one that didn't win you always have those four fallback picks i'd love to see it go that way i got one last question for you on this and we do need to move on to the other stuff i'm the one thing and this is probably where my perspective because of who i have to cover comes in i kind of see the college football landscape changing slightly maybe not today and maybe this is a little preemptive uh conversation but maybe 10 years from now 20 years from now I think the why we are what we are in college football from the Big Ten, from these old sort of stoic, uh, you know, venerable conferences that exist for years and years and years. But with schools like Purdue, with schools like Wake Forest, with schools like, you know, uh, even Boston College, some of these schools that are in bigger conferences, but aren't huge schools. Uh, you know, some of these like an example, like like a 
like a Boston college is, is a, around 10,000, I think students, maybe less than, um, they don't draw, but 20, 25,000 students a game or uh, fans a game, but they're in this locked in thing because they have the right conference affiliation. Um, and we, but I think the, the changing landscape thing I'm trying to get here to though, is like Houston, the university of Houston's like 30 plus thousand students, a monstrous metropolitan school, uh, you know, uh, finally has sort of broken through here and is starting to be able to recruit with some of the big boys, although they did just lose Herman, uh, to the bigger school. But I'm looking at places like Houston. I'm looking at USF, almost 40,000 schools in Southern Florida. I know Willie Taggart just took the Oregon gig, but I- I'm looking at places like that in Cincinnati, these major schools that were really nothing you know, 30, 40 years ago, weren't even a part of that conversation. I'm curious if, you know, if you go to one of those schools, you're, you run the table how how other than just you know affiliation would Houston knocking the shit out of the park be held in a different regard to Wake Forest or Vanderbilt or someone and I, again I understand they're not winning those conferences anyway but I have a little bit of a, an uneasiness about the system anyway where it sort of has this segregation of you guys are the good conferences you guys are the bad ones um, you know, you got to jump through a thousand hoops to finally make it here. Do you ever see there sort of being a, a, a dropping of that line of delineation or are we kind of stuck with it for forever? Well, you bring up a good point. I think this kind of ties into the 18 playoff because if you have eight teams, there's a better chance that maybe Houston or, or any of these smaller schools like a USF in, in the group of five or the American conference, um, maybe one of those schools gets in, a la Western Michigan maybe this year, right? Um, now, this year isn't a good year for it because there's so many other competitive schools, in particular in the Big right. Ten. Um, but, but it brings up a, a greater philosophical argument and discussion, and, and it's one that I've said for a long time. So you mentioned eight teams. If you had eight teams, the problem is those, those conference championships are automatic qualifiers. I personally don't right. have a problem with it. The problem becomes – for example, this year, when you have U.S. win, or if they were to win as a three-loss SEC champion, who's really right. not very good because the SEC wasn't very good this year. If U.F. Right. was to win and beat Alabama, they'd go. And so now you've got a team that I think people feel like isn't very deserving going as an SEC champion, and then Alabama would go. So now you've got two from the SEC, and most people are saying, Florida shouldn't be going, but, but they want it, so we have to give them that. And that would be a predicament that they would have to deal with, although it would be probably kind of rare if it did happen or occur, only because, look, if the two teams are competitive, whoever won, I think you'd give the benefit of the doubt. If the other one was good enough to get in, they'd get in. Um, in this case, I think Florida was so bad, and we saw that. I didn't think it was really going to be that close, and it wasn't. So we don't have to worry about that. And then you right. have your three at-large bids where you could get in a group of five team or a smaller school. Um, but it, it does bring to light the, the great argument for this year. If conference championships don't matter, what's the point of having a power five? What's the point right. of having these conferences with their conference championships if at the end of the day, the college football playoff committee is just going to pick whoever they want to pick? Because it doesn't matter. And, and you noted about the group of five, you see how many head coaches have gotten bigger jobs from uh, the American conference in particular and how competitive that conference was with with Houston and with South Florida and some other, uh, you know, teams that we've seen knock off other power five teams. So I just think, you know, when you're talking about the inclusion of uh, some of these smaller schools, I don't know that that student population really matters. I don't know that, you know, all that stuff plays a part because if you think about it, BC was really good. You know, yeah, people are always going to be doing the Patriots fans first. But still, there's a large market there in Boston. People are going to rally behind that. The school might be small, right? It, it might be exclusive as far as how many kids can actually go to BC. But it's a big television market. And I'm sure people would, would watch from if, if BC and Steve Adazio was undefeated. And I'm not sure right. if you've seen all his press conferences. You know, guys oh, I've seen them all. all that, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> so if, if a bunch of guys wanted to be dudes and put on the BC game if they're undefeated – um, you know, then, then all of a sudden you, you've got, you know, a big media market. Whereas, yeah, Houston's big, Cincinnati's big, USF and Tampa, it's big. But, you know, how big are those media markets compared to Boston? You can make the case it's pretty big. I mean, we saw Houston make a run last year, you know. So I think that day is coming. I think people are getting more comfortable with some of those teams 
uh, doing that. The problem is you also have to have one of those, you know, big time head coaches stay there. I mean, it's never a good sign for your conference when you have three prominent head coaches all jump ship and go to a bigger program that's in a power five. So that's, that's kind of the issue too. Yeah, and there's there's a guy named there, Mike Norville. I'll just get out in front of this now. I mean, I, I did AAC Media Day before the season started and got to interview all these coaches. And I tell you, I, Matt Rule was a rock star at Temple. I think that that was bore out. He went on and took a big job uh, at Baylor, uh, which, you know, is it, controversy aside that school's had. That's one of the new good jobs in, in college football. A lot of money down there. Uh, Mike Norville is, is the guy that took over Memphis this year, and he's a rock star himself. I mean, he's kind of like the – uh, you know, Cliff, Cliffy Kingsbury kind of thing. Young dude, 34. He's all gray, so he looks a little older than he is, but he's, he's, a, he's a young coach. And he went in, and Memphis had another big year. And it's, it's a similar situation, I think, similar to what you're saying, where, yeah, Memphis is a big city. Yeah, it's a big, it's a huge school. Uh, but is the media market as big? I don't know. Mike Norville's probably one of those guys who a year from now, he's like your Herman. He's like your rule. He's like uh, Willie Taggart. He's one of the guys that would probably be, if not one year from now, but two you know, an attractive candidate when a power five goes away. Um, I'm going to use this sort of situation, though, to, to transition into sort of a, a quasi-college, quasi-NFL deal. Uh, a couple big names uh, in the game of college football both declared this week to move on to the pro level. Uh, they're going to go in the NFL draft this next year. Leonard Fournette at LSU, just a monster of a running back, and Christian McCaffrey, uh, just a Swiss Army knife of a back that just about does everything for the Stanford Cardinal. Uh, what is sort of we normally don't need to go through every single guy declares, but I think this is an unusual year in the NFL where Ezekiel Elliott comes out and has put himself not just in the conversation for rookie of the year, but he's like a legit MVP candidate. I don't know if he's going to win the thing. He's probably hurt by the fact that his quarterback is a rookie also has done really well. But I think the conversation around, the immediate impact really, really good backs can have in the NFL and how important they are is sort of back on that front burner. And Fournette and McCaffrey, again, not neither of us here are trying to do draft prognostication. That's not our world. But they seem like impact kind of dudes who could do something at the next level. Well, what's sort of your takeaway on those two guys as collegians and what they might do on the way up? Well, my idea for the value of a running back has somewhat kind of flipped now, I want to say, in recent years. And you look at Todd Gurley's rookie year. Now, he's not doing quite as well in his second year, but I think that has more to do with the offensive line uh, in, in L.A. and the lack of a passing game than his ability. But you mentioned Ezekiel Elliott, and you can kind of make the case that, look, these guys are depreciating assets. They only have a window that's so big. So if you're actually going to take one that you think is really talented, given what he's done at the collegiate level, you should do it in the first round. You, you, and maybe you should do it at a higher pick because you know right away you can come in, you can make him a bell cow, you can run him through um, you know, four or five years, depending on how long the contract is, uh, where you really just hand it off, pound away, and by the end of that first contract, he's going to be so beaten up, worn down, you're, you're going to be looking for another guy in the draft four or five years from now. And that's probably the perspective that maybe some, some – you know, organizations are thinking because there's no way. I mean, the shelf life of a running back in the NFL is seven years is long. I mean, when's the last running right. back you've seen that's have, had a consistent, healthy seven years of carrying the football and being extremely uh, competitive? It's it just you, right. you don't see it anymore. <clears throat> Guys get hurt, and and that's part of it. So I, th- I think if you dr- if they come out early like Christian McCaffrey's done and Leonard Fournette's going to do. Um, you get a chance to get these guys when they're healthier, when they're fresher, and, and you're utilizing them. Because, to be honest, it's not that hard, right? They've got to read the blocking in front of them. But if it's a man-blocking scheme, they're usually following a polar. Uh, if it's a zone-blocking scheme, everyone's seen it at the collegiate level because everyone runs some sort of zone read. So they, they've seen the backside cut. They have a feel for it. And then the other element is the majority of these guys have caught footballs out of the backfield, in the screen game, right. or even out as a wide receiver. And yep. so they're good at pass protection. They're good at all that. So I think the one position that hasn't been hurt by the spread offense is the running back, and I think it helps these guys come in and have an impact sooner. Um, the, the biggest thing is, is how much a team wants to invest into one. Ezekiel Elliott can make the case that you should take one higher. You, this is what you can get out of it. But there's, there's few circumstances or teams that have the offensive line 
like the Dallas Cowboys do that open up a lot of holes. Right. Now, that being said, if you look at Ezekiel Elliott's average per carry versus Alfred Morris, that's where you see the value. He's averaging at least a yard, if not two yards more. Fournette could average that. You know, big physical runner, kind of reminds you of Adrian Peterson a little bit, although can he catch 41 receptions in his career? Um, so that's yep. part of it. Christian McCaffrey, you know, people are going to say he can do it all. He's a return guy. He can protect. He's smart. This and that. What's his 40, though? You know, you don't see him get caught, that, yeah. right? You know, right? He's always breaking away from people, but what's his 40? What's his top end speed? Because um, he, he runs so smooth that he looks so smooth. I personally think he's a 4-4 guy, but we'll have to wait till the combine to see. So there's definitely going to be some questions that will have to be answered, I, I think, for both both players. But Ezekiel Elliott's kind of helping them make the case that, you know, maybe they do get taken in the first round uh, or, or early second, depending on, you know, how you look at these guys and their skill set. Yeah, I, I love I love that you went there, Brady, because I, I really think that's sort of being ahead of the curve, quite frankly, if an NFL team is thinking that way. It, it's not so much – we talk about what positions are valued at what uh, relative to free agency a lot of times. I think people say, oh, you know, you're never going to give the back what you're going to give a pass rusher, right? Because you can always find another back. That's usually the argument. And you can't find a guy that can get 15 sacks. There's rare. That's rare there's a rare – sort of breed out there but uh, the teams are so much more willing to draft that guy and you miss on pass rushers all the time I mean it's so common that you know a guy does his sack numbers from you know BYU or from you know Georgia or whatever don't translate to the NFL it doesn't always you know he might be a one-note guy he has one nice move he's a little quicker off the ball and all of a sudden he doesn't counter much his strength isn't as good something like that it's it's as common as you know drafting um, you know, Richardson uh, out of Alabama and having him just not be a good back. But I think people will use that situation and say, oh, you never should have taken Richardson that high. You know, you don't have to take backs that high. Well, no, I don't think that was it. I think he just whiffed on that particular guy. The evaluation wasn't right there. Yeah. But I look at this and I'm like, man, if you want to really be ahead of the curve on economics here, I'm doing exactly what you just said. I'm drafting the one when it's special, in the moments where it's special, when it's like you really have a guy. And I think Todd Gurley is an example where you really had a guy, but you're wasting him because the rest of the offense is so poor. He's really easy to key in on. We had we had him with the Patriots last week here, and he it was a, a really almost sad sort of uh, game film review to watch what that guy has and what he's not getting, you know, because the, the, the people are just firing off them. There's no, there's no real threat of the passing game. It's all catch and run stuff. Tavon Aston occasionally, uh, maybe some shot stuff with Britt, but it's just not a, it's not an offense you fear. You can just get down there and really load them up on those guys. And they've had offensive line issues, former first rounder Robinson, not even starting anymore. And they there's, it's, it's a mess. So it's really hard to evaluate what that one guy's doing, but in your scenario, Holy cow. I mean, you, you got the guy for four years, presumably, on that on that rookie contract. You can franchise him once, and franchise number for backs is going to be low because people don't love to throw him a bunch of cash in free agency. You can run him into the ground. I know it sounds terrible on a, on a player's show to talk about other players that way, but uh, from just a use standpoint, you could give him David Johnson touches. You could give the guy 40 touches a game, you know, 30, 32 to 35 kind of runs and, and target him a handful of times in the passing game. Use him up and let somebody else go pay, overpay, and then maybe at that point, who knows? But, man, I would think that draft capital for backs, if you think you can use early, that can learn the offense early, can be used right away faster than a wide receiver typically is, or a quarterback, um, you know, the, the, the quarterbacks that can't miss if you got a guy, you got to go there. But man, I would think this is. Inc- I would think the new cap structure, and I think the new rookie rookie wage scale structure, and the way people shy away from backs and free agency should really raise the value of taking a back early. Use them up now. But uh, we'll we'll sort of transition out of that stuff and into the one little officiating thing before we talk week fourteen games. This one was just more ha ha. I thought you know we've we've done our, our fair share of hammering on officials this year, but there was an oddball thing. We had some weather last week uh, that sort of Ohio Valley got it up in the Lakes region. They got it. Uh, uh, there was a little bit of snow on the ground, and uh, oddly enough, in the uh, let's see, I'm gonna check out exactly which game it was. I believe it was the San Francisco game. Yeah. In, uh, in Chicago, this is in Chicago. One of the 49ers cornerbacks, Rashad Robinson celebrated play by making a snow angel, right? Uh, we had an old guy, Lonnie Paxton years ago, made the snow angel against the Raiders and I got semi famous for it's always kind of a funny post celebration kind of touchdown celebration thing to do. Now that happens across the kind of, you know, in one game and then over another game, the Packers Randall Cobb does it himself. He does a snow angel, but he doesn't get a flag. And it became sort of a little social media haha thing. And they made it, it rose to the point where Dean Blandino, head of NFL officiating, had to sort of answer what gives? Why? 
why in one place an identical celebration doesn't get a flag, and then in another place it does. Uh, and his answer, which almost knocks me out of my chair, it's exactly what you kind of have suspect and what I, I want to hate about the NFL and the way they officiate games. He says, Dean says that they have discretion. He's like, officials have discretion of whether or not to call it. So basically, in their view, a snow angel can be illegal in one stadium and, and not illegal in another, which I think brings in a just an, an insane sort of inconsistency kind of issue that that really frustrates players around the league. Did, did you see that? What's the way to solve it? Uh, I did see one suggestion here that I thought was brilliant. Uh, I'm curious about your take of it. With If we kind of get rid of this whole conversation about what someone does and just simply put a time component on it, you, any way that you get a celebration penalty, it would only be one in the event that it delays the game. In other words, you spend 15 seconds doing it or something. But provided you don't do something that's with a dildo or something crazy that's sexually perverse or something <laughs> actually dangerous, we're not going to throw a flag, right? So if it's just whatever it is, if it doesn't violate the time component, it would fly. Uh, any thoughts on all of that or or just the inconsistency issue altogether? Well, you threw me off with the dildo comment. I, I, that's my that was my point. Yeah. Where are you? Where are you getting? Where are you getting a dildo? <laughs> Like I understand. I'm saying pantomime, pantomiming dildos or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but I mean, I I actually think that that's a decent idea, right? Put up a shot clock, let them do whatever they want. I think it draw more viewership, more entertainment. I mean, look, kids nowadays just want to be entertained. If you're looking at trying to recruit a younger generation, you can't be the no fun league. You know, they need to go back to what it was before. Um, I guess at some point they've got to draw the line, though. And, um, you know, you can make the same discussion as to why networks won't show uh, streakers on the field. Now, you know, this, this past week we had two, I believe, uh, in, in, in MetLife Stadium. And yep. they weren't naked, so the TV could have shown them. The guys were shirtless, and there was two right. huge tackles, which that got the biggest round of applause the entire night. And and Monday Night Football is sitting there probably doing all they can to try to get better ratings because their games have been so bad. And it's like, you know, even the networks don't want to show it. So I'm not sure there's much you can attribute to the fact that when they have discretion and it's kind of subjective, what else can you really say besides the fact that they're moving in a direction that takes a lot of the fun and the celebration and the emotions out of football, which is unfortunate because that's part of the game. It's one of the most emotional, passionate games you have. And there's nothing better, you know, than on live television than real, raw human emotion. That's why we watch. That's why we, you know, that's why we're watching the game of football because there's no greater reality TV. So uh, to, to me, there's there's no real solution to it unless you just you know put it or implement something like what you're talking about with having a certain time frame and maybe some guidelines of which you know, you want to use, you don't want to use a foreign object or device. You can use the football, right. but that's it. And you can still choreograph things with your teammates, but that's it. Um, so th- that's the only thing that are robots, Matt. I mean, that's what we're getting to. We're getting towards right, to right. having more consistency by just replacing all the officials with robots. And we'll just have them officiate the games where they'll be more consistent. Maybe they'll miss some things. Who knows? But you know, our, our, our humans are too, but it just, it sounds ridiculous, but in all honesty, that's, that's kind of the only other alternative, and I think we're, what, 30, 40 years away from that. Right. Well, and, and the crazy thing here to me is when we look through this, it's it's the way you don't make rules. I think you can look at this in business and life and faith, whatever it happens to be, but whenever you get to a situation where you, you determine something may or may not be wrong, and you just start compiling lists of the things that will qualify and the lists of things that won't. And that, that's silly. I mean, it's just a terrible, like here, it's like snow angels. Yes, this, yes, this, no, this, no, this, yes, but not too long. This, no, this bad. And I think the the greatest sort of uh, contrast here is the college football broadcast going on the night before and the NFL showing up the next day. And you watch how dramatically different uh, you watch the ACC championship game and all they're showing is sort of uh, lead-in promos and little B-roll stuff of, uh, of 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 Deshaun Watson doing his bow and arrow. It's literally how they built the visual packages to go in and out of breaks, to come back. I mean, it's the excitement of 
him making a play, him doing that motion. And then on the other side, you have the NFL that would penalize that guy, allow those yards to affect the outcome of the game. I mean, it's just silly. It's silly. I mean, there's there's nothing that the NFL is penalizing for that college football isn't that is somehow affecting children, affecting the actual sportsmanship going on in the games. None of it. It's so silly. You can even go back to, you know, Terrell Owens faking that he had a, a cell phone or pulling a cell phone out or uh, I mean, none of that matters. Like, who cares? Like, it just it doesn't they they've waged a war against nothing and they didn't win, <laughs> which is which is kind of predictable. It's just it's just really stupid. It was a waste of a decade about things that were really, really unimportant. So we'll move here on to to, to regular games. And I want to be uh, we're going to skip over the, t- the the Thursday night football game. It's probably something that we can we can hit on a little more heavily next week and sort of in the aftermath. But we're doing a Thursday show here. It's going on this evening. You may be listening to this on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you already know the results. But that Raiders Chiefs games, we really want to see how that thing fleshes out. The Chiefs dominated it the first time around twenty. 20- 6-10, uh, really, uh, really won there on a lot of fronts. Uh, but I'm curious how that swings. Won't make any predictions because, you know, you're gonna, you may be hearing this. You may already know the answers. But we'll head into the weekend games. Uh, first one jumps off the board to me. And this is something as we're doing the show, we don't yet know. But Trevor Simeon, I'm going to talk Broncos-Titans here. So it's an interesting game in that the Titans are still sort of teetering, still sort of lingering in the background, still enough of a player just because of what's going on in their their particular division the Broncos they're winning ugly you know last week against the Jaguars Paxton Lynch gets the full-time game they win 2010 the Jaguars are really struggling right now the Broncos aren't looking terribly impressive but need they not be without their quarterback but this week at least as we're doing this show Trevor Simeon was limited they they, they show him back involved in sort of practice schedule uh, what I want to do here as we head through these games Brady is just sort of hone in on a quick deciding factor you know the kind of thing you think that'll that'll be the difference in this game and we're really focusing here on about half a dozen games that are important for playoff picture kind of games so we'll start with Broncos Titans from that game Simeon in Simeon out what is sort of your deciding factor on how that thing will go down yeah no, look the deciding factor for me is just that and it's whether or not Trevor Simeon starts or whether or not it's Paxton Lynch you go back to the past two starts for Paxton Lynch look He's got more upside. He's got more size, more arm strength. He's probably a, a very similar athlete, but, again, greater size. The problem is the game just hasn't slowed down for him. And, and you go back to his two starts and you look at his, well, that's his completion percentages or his decision-making. He's not opening up the field or opening up the playbook kind of like I thought he would. And on the flip side, you've got Trevor Simeon, who arguably had his best game of the season in a loss to Kansas City where – it felt like whatever the third down distance was, he was going to be able to throw a ball to pick it up. So you kind of find yourself in a little bit of a predicament, I think, if you're a Broncos fan because you've got the future in pa- Paxton Lynch, who you'd probably like to see get in there and play some more and see if he continues to grow or see if he has that better game. But playoff implications are on the line. And, and you mentioned it. The Titans are a team that is much better than I think people give them credit. You know, still a team kind of building and all that, but Six and six, they're tied at the top of the division. If they get a win, they'll most likely be tied again at the top of the division because Houston plays Indianapolis. So someone's going to lose that game. So this game has huge implications not only for the AFC West and the Denver Broncos and their playoff uh, run, but also for the AFC South. And to me, it all comes down to who plays quarterback for the Broncos. I think they have a much better chance of winning if Simeon plays versus if Paxton Lynch plays based on what I've seen so far from him. I'm actually going to go on the other side. I think the issue lies more with, uh, for me personally, that what goes on with the Titans and sort of turnover differential there for them. I look at Mariota, and I was trying to sort of figure out who within Denver's sort of schedule or who they'd played that Mariota would remind me most of. And I'm going Alex Smith, and I I think obviously Mariota is a higher, is more of an upside guy than Alex. He's a guy that that they they let throw more downfield balls. He's a little more aggressive on the outside. But I I do kind of look at just stylistically, or at least ability-wise, the ability to sort of escape out fronts of pockets to extend plays, and and a team that has a really high-end running game with DeMarco Murray and, and Henry as a compliment. I think that's kind of one of the the combinations that give the Broncos the most trouble. It's really not about 
which particular weapons they have offensively. It's not a wide receiver group, or they're actually really strong at the tight end position, obviously. And I think that soaks up a lot of the the ranginess you get out of Marshall at the middle linebacker position. So that's helpful. I just think the the Titans makeup is probably one of those that gives the Broncos the most trouble. It's comparable to the Chiefs. I think they might actually offensively be better than what the Chiefs do. So I look at it, you know, can Marcus have sort of a big boy game? Can he have sort of one of those games where they protect the football and they start to pile on because sort of back to your point though I think Denver's going to have a little trouble keeping up that said the Titans defense has been probably the element that slipped for their team most recently they've been giving up a lot through the air so if you're a little you're a little concerned about what what potentially uh, your Broncos quarterback might do this might be one of the matchups where it's a little bit more helpful um, that's one to keep an eye on though because I think where the Broncos are going to slot out in this AVFC is really you'll learn a lot because that's them basically playing a potential back-end AFC playoff qualifier move here on to the Steelers and the Bills uh, big story here in this game is sort of the heat that Tyrod Taylor has been getting in the last week or so uh, really from the maybe last three weeks performances he would got the new contract but the new contract doesn't has like a big guaranteed clause I think that hits in March that throws in another 30 million in money um, they got back Sammy Watkins in a, in a minor role. Uh, but now I think as these weeks start to tick away, that offense should start to look like what it's supposed to look like, I guess, in my view. Um, they face a Steelers team that's right in the thick of this thing, especially with the Patriots playing the Ravens this week. And if that ends up meaning a Ravens loss, the Steelers have a chance to get back in the top of that thing. I'll give mine quick before we toss to you. I, I just really think this is one of those weeks where the Steelers defense is really going to have to play a great run defense, something that at points they've struggled with because that Buffalo offense can be multiple and I think can be one of the groups with the right kind of makeup that gives them trouble. If McCoy doesn't go off, if Gillisley doesn't go off, if Tyrod's just pocket quarterback only, well then never mind. I think they can't they'll they'll struggle to keep pace with the Steelers. But if they struggle holding those guys tight, which in that same division or in that same conference, the Patriots had similar issues, I could think that I think that could be a healthy game. How about you, Brady, on Steelers Bills? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I'm looking at in this game is more of the scheme. So I'm actually looking at offensive coordinator Todd Haley versus, you know, Rob Ryan, Rex Ryan, whoever Dennis Thurman, whoever he has thrown on as far as who's in control of the, the, the defensive play calling and game planning this week. Uh, because, you know, besides Antonio Brown, we saw last week with Darius Green kind of steps up in their, in their win over the New York Giants. Uh, Jesse James has been solid, but – they need another wide receiver to step up. So the scheme I would imagine would be to, you know, double Antonio Brown however possible. But the problem is the way they utilize him, the way they mix him in, I mean, he's had some reverses. They get these quick screens where they throw to him. Um, they just they move him around. They, they make it incredibly hard for you to bracket him. What does Todd Haley do to continue to drum up production in the passing game with Antonio Brown and the Steelers? And then, and then who do they try to really highlight or used to compliment him because, you know, they haven't really had anyone consistent out there. Will it be Eli Rogers? He's a guy that I'm kind of looking to see if he's going to step up um, or is it going to be just multiple tight end sets and maybe they'll, they'll use Le'Veon Bell out of the backfield. Either way, um, it, it's going to be interesting to me to, to talk when you talk about the formations, um, the different variations of plays, whether it's the screens um, or, or again, some of the, the things off of that, you know, last week, they threw a touchdown pass to Ladarius Green off of one of the fake wide receiver screens out to Eli Rogers, and instead they re- released Antonio Brown up the sideline and Ladarius Green up, up to the scene, and he ran right by Landon Collins for a touchdown. So that's just one example of one of the wrinkles that Todd Haley can throw in there. So that, that's what I'm looking to see is who's going to have the schematic advantage between these two staffs in this game. And, and really quick, for Tyrod Taylor, you know, look, he hasn't had a number one wide receiver. You mentioned Sammy Watkins. He's been back for a couple games. He hasn't been healthy. I mean, right. the, the next closest thing they had was has been Robert Woods. And it's nothing against Robert Woods. I, th- I think he's stepped up his game this year. But, you know, statistically speaking, he's ranked like 69th in the NFL in, in receiving yards and all that. And you could say that's a product of, well, Tyrod Taylor is his quarterback, and he's the one throwing him the football. But when you put on the film, no one gets open. You know, no, right. no one's able to get any sort of separation. It's incredibly difficult. And, you know, you're looking at this offense. When Anthony Lynn first took over, you know, he's a former running back. He's, a running, he's been a running backs coach. You kind of thought, okay, they're going to run the football. We know that. That's what they did. But what right. were they going to have outside of that? What were they going to have in the passing game to complement that? 
I think that's the part of, you know, Anthony Lynn calling plays that we haven't seen the growth. We haven't seen the growth because I don't know that they have a ton of talent. I mean, this team needs two legitimate number one wide receivers because Sammy Watkins is good when he's healthy. I don't think he's healthy right now. And, and I don't think there's another compliment to him. And, and Charles Clay's been banged up at the tight end position. So they've got all kinds of issues. To me, none of them have to do with Tyrod Taylor. You put him down on the Houston Texans right now, they are running oh, away right. with the AFC South. I mean, that's how good I think Tyrod Taylor is. I'm right with you, dude. I think that's a great call. Actually, I had not thought about that, but I, if you if you took Tyrod Taylor, and I've, I've been really impressed with him at points throughout this season where I'd kind of forgotten that he, there was even a question, but then you have a couple bad games and all of a sudden, you know, press kind of gets in your face and starts, you know, uh, I guess questioning in their own eyeballs and what they've seen in the months prior to that. But yeah, you throw them down there with how many, how much trouble have they been getting that offense going? You'd have a running game behind him. You'd have, yeah, I think that's, I think he's more of a value pick than, than what you got in Osweiler, or at least in what we've seen thus far. And man, the weapons there would, would, he would thrive with that. But I, I look back to the bills of old, man, you always had an Eric molds or you had a Stevie Johnson or some sort of catch gobbler, some of like a really refined pro wide receiver. And then the, the, the complimentary guys, well, yeah, then they do their thing. Then your Marquise Goodwins and your Robert Woods as threes and fours do what you expect them to do but when those guys are forced to be first options it's just not bound to not be a good offense so it's really tough to even blame the quarterback but we'll move on here to Giants Cowboys Uh, I'll be quick on this one because I've really been uh, I'd say disappointed and I think a lot of Giants fans feel this way but if you watch sort of their performance over the last maybe month They've had really modest o- offensive output, and, and I think it was at a moment where they're trying to keep pace with the Cowboys. Well, now they have them across from them on the sideline. Uh, you know, they, they had sort of a paltry performance a week ago against the Steelers. Uh, you know, Bears week where they're not putting up much. Again, they, they had logged wins. They're sitting at eight and four. They've got, they've got some, uh, you know, sort of assets as far as the win column, but there's some concern that as they hit some of these better teams, they're going to struggle to keep up. You know, just putting up the 22 against the Bears, uh, basically a barn burner, 2021 kind of thing against the Bengals, and people had been scoring on them. And you put a, you, know, you put them now against the Cowboys team. I think they're going to put it on you. The deciding factor for me is you cannot, you cannot, if you're the Cowboys, uh, count on a, on a, a game where you're in the 20s or low 20s. If you're hitting it 18 to 22, the Cowboys are going to put it on you. I don't think there's really anything other than that. How can they come about an explosion? I don't know. I think McAdoo's got sort of his – He's got it up against him here to, to, to sort of generate some more offense. But if they're in that range, those kind of games, I don't think cut it against the Cowboys. What do you see there, Brady? Yeah, as far as the deciding factor, um, to me, the weaknesses of the New York Giants are a bit exposed versus the Steelers. The right side of the offensive line still struggles. They don't have a consistent running game. And you can make the case, I, I feel like that's because the guy who's probably best suited right now to tote the rock for them consistently is actually Paul Perkins, you know, just from the right. one little, I think he had an 18 yard run uh, last week. I was kind of watching that thinking, why is this kid not getting more touches? Get a great jump, <laughs> jump cut to see the backside cut, get some down closer into the red zone. And then end up turning the football over on downs. But I mean, th- that's, that's the question I had. That's, that's one of the reasons why I feel like this team has kind of struggled a little bit offensively. Is that hasn't been any balance or a running game. Um, but you know, it's, it, it, it's whether or not the Dallas Cowboys can continue to keep exposing them. And then the flips, or excuse me, the, the other caveat to that is it's, it's Victor Cruz. He's been inconsistent. People are starting to get a little bit frustrated with the fact he wasn't even targeted last week. And you look at Odell Beckham and the 10 catches, 100 yards, no touchdowns, but targeted a bunch as well. Sterling Shepard was targeted eight times. Uh, and it seems like Victor Cruz hasn't been part of the bunch. And Ben McAdoo talked about it. They just feel like he's inconsistent. His route running, the things that he are do- he's doing, they're inconsistent. So um, he's got to find a way to, to step up his level of you know, play or, or at least get more comfortable with uh, Eli Manning because that's the other element is if you're not being targeted, that means you're not, you're not even giving your quarterback the opportunity to have confidence in you either getting open or running the right route or running the right depth. So there's something going on there. And for this team to be successful, given the fact they play in 11 personnel, which is three wide receivers, one tight end, one running back, they play yeah. almost predominantly in just 11 personnel he has to be an essential part. You can't have some guy who, who's, who's just a decoy out there at that third wide receiver. All those guys have to pitch in. They have to have an impact. So I'm looking to see if Victor Cruz steps up and how they work him into the game plan. 
Well, yeah, that's an interesting idea. You, you figure, I always figured Victor Cruz, and again, coming off of multiple injuries, missing, you know, full seasons and parts of other ones, you just wondered what you were going to get back. And a, a half in my head say, hey, man, he's not, he's probably not the same guy as far as separation and, and things like that, that he was 18 months ago. And that, that happens sometimes. Uh, but again, give him a full year back and maybe a year from now, they feel a little differently. But for what they're getting for usage right now, it's just not there. Uh, I'm going to go Packers Seahawks here for our second to last game. And with the Packers, uh, I think that sort of thing I'm curious to see if they have, if they're equipped to take advantage of is the loss of Earl Thomas. And Earl Thomas is one of the best sort of sideline to sideline rangy guys own center field can, you know, get early enough reads and breaks on stuff in that, that deep third sort of cover three stuff that they like uh, to be able to get, outside the numbers which on deep outside balls or to get to the end cuts to get down on sort of the deep dig stuff that a lot of safeties are a step slower step slower two steps slower but he hits he has range he's rare in that regard a lot of the good stuff they do was dependent upon him I would also argue that uh, Cam Chancellor who's obviously a stud for them has missed a big chunk of the season but back now uh, would was we always think of them as sort of their their great back end secondary also you know at, entirely obviously the Richard Sherman but uh, the idea of if you had one or the other I think you can replace the strong safety position the down guy maybe not be nearly as physical as Cam but still execute the core defense the way you want to three gets a little tough if your thirds player your middle thirds player isn't as proficient so I'm curious my, my, my deciding factor here is just will the Packers sort of be able to build formations will they be able to lean upon you know Roger or the, the Rodgers of the tight end, excuse me, or, or the other sort of tight end group to work these seams, to potentially get Jordy Nelson sort of running skinny posts or anything that sort of threatens or even get to the outside and stack. Anything here that would test Seattle's ability to sort of cover up some of these these route concepts that Earl always has that, that's made him so strong I think that'll be sort of the game within the game that'll be fun to watch because that really hasn't been what what the Packers do I mean they don't threaten that part of the field nearly as much it's more Rodgers's creativity extending plays the the Cobb stuff the the Devontae Adams uh catch and run plays so it hasn't been them can they can they go after that or maybe do they have another game plan that doesn't require it? but uh, uh what do you see there in that particular game Brady well, I'm just curious to see if the Seattle Seahawks on the road can go into Lambeau Field where, where Aaron Rodgers is so good and be able to get a win. And they're going to have to do it by running the football. That's always a staple. Um, it's something that I think you go back to the time that Seattle had Marshawn Lynch. That's where everything started. And it was built off of that in the play-action pass game, the boot game, and everything else. They want to get back to that. And I think with Thomas Rawls back, they feel like they can. And, you know, look, this is one of the better – rush defenses in the NFL. Green Bay's a top 10 rush defense where they've struggled is in that really the pass defense. And I'm so curious to really see if Green Bay can step up defensively for this task, for this challenge, because they, they look in order for them to win the division, I feel like they kind of have to win out. And, and I say that because one Detroit has a two game lead, but really they play them at the end of the year. So you can kind of make the case that they have a one game lead because that last game is going right. to come down to, you know, those two teams squaring off. So the bottom line is they have to make up, they have to make up some room. And when you got when you have home field advantage, especially in Lambeau and you're the Packers, you got to take advantage of it. And this is not going to be an easy game, but you know, their, their past defense has struggled. They've been riddled with injuries. That's going to, that could play a factor, but it seems like that's what's kind of, you know, been, been, I guess one of the, one of the more, you know, statistically speaking, Russell Wilson hasn't put up great numbers because he's been banged up. Their offensive line has been bad, but they're starting to turn the corner. Jimmy Graham's become more involved. Doug Baldwin's a legitimate option. Jermaine Curse will always surprise you. Then Tyler Lockett is really the X factor. You know, he, he had a 75 right. yard run last week. He's a return yep. guy. They, they do all kinds of different things with him. So, you know, how do the Packers step up? Can they stop the run? Can they force Seattle be one dimensional? Can they handle all the different things that they throw at you? And then, and then, oh, by the way, deal with the size of a tight end and the athleticism of a tight end like Jimmy Graham. That's what I'm curious to see. I, I think Aaron Rodgers will put up points. He'll, he'll be able to you know, dissect some things and figure some things out. It's going to come down to me if the Green Bay Packers are up to the task of trying to stop the Seattle Seahawks. 
Yeah, I, I, the Seahawks are such a curiosity to me, and I, I know I kept my conversation there based upon the Packers, but the one thing that, if I'm a Seattle fan, I'm always worried. I don't know if the, if the road thing here is just a coincidence, but Seattle has had two games this season, one in division where they went to Arizona, and the other one where they went down to Tampa just recently, two weeks ago, and uh, they've, scored, they've scored five and six points on the road. It's just there's there's this schizophrenic thing that goes on with that team that I know they've had a lot of offensive line issues, and there's been sort of a, you know, do they have Thomas Rawls? Do they have backs who are no longer even on the team? You know, uh, Christian Michael, like, like are they going to be able to generate that part of the offense and then they don't have it, then all the other stuff doesn't work. But they're kind of that, like, potential stinker team. Like, you may get a, a, a performance that would win the Super Bowl, or you may get one that you, you want to sort of erase from your record and want no one to ever find about, <laughs> never find that tape. So that's what Seattle, it'll be an interesting game. We'll see who shows up. And I think for Packers fans that are out there, they, you can sometimes feel that way about your Packers team this year as well. well finish off with Patriots Ravens this week a Monday night game uh, the Ravens and Patriots oddly enough both have uh, the second leading uh, points per game defense in the NFL and a lot of people are down on the Patriots defense they've actually prevented teams from scoring which is the goal of football that's why they have scoreboards with those lights on them uh, the, the Ravens on the other hand have had uh, a real stingy defensive performance that's kept the team alive breathing we'll, we'll say it that way they're seven to five they're not uh, they're not knocking out of the park but they stay alive because of really really good defensive performances I'll go swing factor first on this one for me and it, it, to me it's just going to be red zone performance if you look at you look at uh, the Patriots a week ago against another really good Rams defense. Uh, they had they ended up kicking four field goals, only one touchdown on the day. Uh, still getting their 26 points, still getting up near their average with Brady of a 29-8, I think is the number. So they're always going to be ticking up against 30 points. You know you're going to have to get close to that to, to stay with them. But they stalled a bit in the red zone. And I know it's, it's easy sort of knee-jerk knee say, hey, no Rob Gronkowski, no red zone touches. But Rob's touches weren't exclusively in the red zone necessarily when, when he was gone. Uh, they, but I think maybe the coverage he absorbs in the other places they go when he is in there kind of helps loosen things. Uh, so for me, uh, deciding factor here is really going to be performance of really both of these teams once across the third. I mean, that's maybe that's an easy layup for me to go that direction because red zone is important in everybody's game. But I think it's particularly so because the Ravens are so good playing down there, uh, and they are, are are apt to sort of let play on top of things cover four is Dean Pease that are coordinators real big thing that's why he came here as our coordinator my former coach to really institute cover four something we didn't run until till Dean got here he was running it at Kent State and knew it well at the at the MAC level uh, but I, I look at really their tendency to want to stay on top of stuff let it be below you rally tackle get big strong inside rushes from some of their front guys and uh, really force you to go the long hard way and it's against a Patriots group that uh, has to find the, the the deeper strike guys to loosen them some things, and the real estate doesn't allow you to do it in the red zone. So how are the Patriots going to score down there? We know when they faced each other last, uh, two years ago in the playoffs, uh, it was a 35-31 game, but it was a huge target. I think like, tw- I'm, 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 I don't have it in front of me, but 12 to 14 targets, some crazy high number like that to Gronk and uh, a, a north of 10 number to Edelman. I might have those two stitched around, but both both of those guys, it was an Edelman and Gronk, the Edelman, Edelman, Gronk, and then I think there were nine rushing attempts on the day. That's really a tough formula uh, to, 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 to go against this team now. So I'm presuming there'll have to be some run game. You can't just not run it once you cross that 30. I'll be watching to see sort of how they figure that out so when you look at that game Brady well where will you where will your attention be as a deciding factor uh well it's funny you say that that you said they'll have to run the football I don't know if they will have to or even will you know the New England Patriots rushing attack is one of the most underrated in the NFL I think they're like sixth in the league and it, it, for whatever reason everyone kind of thinks oh it's Tom Brady they air it out they spread it out no they, they run the football too but with as good as the Ravens are against the run, they're number one in the NFL rush defense, number yep. one total defense. This could be a game where, you know, you try to get some of those bigger run stuffers up front off the field. And how do you do that? You spread them out. You mix in some 10 personnel, four wide receivers, uh, you know, no tight end, one running back. You mix in some 11 personnel. We talked about that personnel before. Uh, I think you spread them out. You get some empty formations. You get some – quick throws to the outside where you don't really allow guys like Terrell Suggs to even get started in their pass rush, frustrate them early, um, and, and then be able to find some weaknesses in the secondary that way. You know, I think this is a really good defense, but I think 
the best defensive personnel grouping for Baltimore is in base defense. So I would try to get them in the nickel. I'd try to get them into those sub packages where really, to me, it plays to the advantage of the New England Patriots. You put Bennett, you put Hogan and, and Edelman and Amendola, and Malcolm Mitchell has really stepped up the past few weeks. You put all those guys from mixing them on, in on the field, I think that's what the advantage, advantage is for Tom Brady. And I didn't even mention any of the running backs splitting out against those guys. Yeah. So I, I'm curious to see you know, how Josh McDaniels chooses to go up against Dean Pease and chooses to go up against this very, very tough Baltimore Ravens defense at home. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't spread them out, if they didn't try to utilize uh, more empty formations, more spread formations, things of that. Not only to give Tom some coverage indicators as far as what the Baltimore Ravens defense is trying to do, but also just to protect him, to get the ball out of his hand quick, and to find more production that way. Yeah, it's an interesting thought, and I, I think you are are one of the things we've sort of seen we've seen them do, which has been different. And Josh McDaniels is, you know, you've had him as a coach. I I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. He he sort of rolls different series out there at teams. I've noticed this a lot lately, where you sort of get into a okay, we're going out for this series wherever we happen to be backed up or starting, and you'll see a lot of themes that sort of carry through there. And it can be demonstrably different than the next series, which is weird. Like a week ago against the Rams, uh, it was like a run series. The ton of ta- ton of touches for all three of the backs. Garrett has a big series. Uh, Dion and uh, Dion Lewis and James White both have touches. They get conversions. It ends up being sort of the running backs series. And then they go into others, and it's like they'll do 10 personnel or they'll do 11 a lot, where it's a lot of just wide receivers, and you'll see a high Malcolm Mitchell touch uh, series. And then or another one where it's Edelman will get three or four touches on one drive, and it's like he's first read, and you can tell it. So it's almost like they, they, they change the focus each time they come out and hoping that, you know, maybe the defense is a, a player or two behind and making their adjustments to what they're doing. The struggle here, though, with the Patriots is they lost Danny Amendola for the year with an ankle, uh, high ankle sprain. So you're not going to get him. And you bring up a good point of, you know, going empty because they love to do it. I guess the question everyone will be looking to see is how they account for that next body. And one of the things the Patriots have done in the past, uh, we, you know, it's close to the media. We don't get to see how they make these adjustments, but they really only have three legit wide receivers still on the roster, Malcolm Mitchell, Edelman, and Chris Hogan. I mean, Amadola there, but he's injured. Because um, Matthew Slater was a guy that fills in. He blocks great, can do a shot play from time to time. He's a special teams stud, but Matthew's been injured as well. So that fourth wide receiver to make up those groups probably has to come out of the back group. But we know they've done that in the past, you know, uh, extend out either James White or Deion Lewis, and they can do it. But how they build those formations would be interesting to watch because, you know, we don't know. And they, they sort of have that that uh, card against your chest to be able to to, to do with how they're going to do it and without anyone knowing until you get there. So awesome show. Great time this week. And uh, Brady, am I correct uh, that you are, you're, you've made the transition out of big time college football uh, with that part done and you're going to now work on an NFL game. What do you got going on this weekend? Yeah, I'm actually uh, up in Carolina, up, up for me um, against the San Diego Chargers. So, you know, n- not much on the line. You know, both teams are still trying to mathematically stay alive for the playoffs. Uh, I, don't, I don't think either has been eliminated yet, but with a loss, um, whoever loses would be eliminated, given everything that we have going on this weekend. And, and look, let me just say this. Uh, this is Separation Sunday. This, is, this, this Sunday will actually determine the fate for a lot of teams as far as uh, what's going to be happening in the playoffs, who's going to be eliminated and all that. And there's a lot of competitive games. So th- this might actually be one of the best weekends we've had in the NFL the entire season. I know it's gotten to week 14 before we had a slate like this, but – you know, if you're one of those guys who's a gambler and you're, like, picking games, good luck this week. I mean, literally, even even a stinker like the San Francisco 49ers versus New York Jets, you know, that's, that's a tight spread. And on top of it, you tell me who you think is going to win that game, Matt, because I have no idea. <laughs> right. Who do you have faith in there, right? you know? Yeah. Well, hey, Brady, for, for, for your game, just all I would caution you is just, you know, wear a tie. And because we don't want you to not be able to call the first series. I want to make sure you're available there and, you know, not, I want you to be home. We want to get your insight on those, those first plays. So enjoy it out there. Get yourself some barbecue, buddy. Every time we make that, we make that trip uh, for our broadcast for the Patriots preseason games. We go to Carolina each of the last several years and there's some, there's some spots you can't miss. Get to get some mustard sauce and have a good time and enjoy the nice weather. I will. All right, buddy. Have a great weekend. You too. All right, folks, that's all we've got for this week's FBF podcast. That's that show we call In the Game, Little College, Little NFL. Great weekend coming up of ball. Hopefully we gave you a little bit of a 
little outline there, some things to look for. As Brady mentioned earlier, it's really going to be move week. A lot of important stuff going on. The results will matter for how this thing shakes out. You always love it when the matchups work out that way. So thanks again to you always for your patronage, for your for your attention, checking out both the podcasts, going to footballbyfootball.com, following us on all those social media platforms, our YouTube page, which is a, an easy way to, to get those videos to you directly, or liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at FB by FB. All of that. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you on the other side. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.